Thank you for coming this morning. We're going to continue our study through um, how to study the Bible and what that looks like for believers as we come to God's Word to seek to understand and know who God is. And I hope for you that this has been helpful as we're really looking to, to think through these lessons in order, to think through them in combination with each other, and to really evaluate as a whole um, how we can grow in our godliness through submitting to God's word as he's revealed himself. So I hope you've been encouraged as we've looked at um, why we must study the Bible, uh, the necessary disciplines of praying and reading God's word the importance of hermeneutics, which is really just understanding how to interpret the Bible. And then, as we've been looking at, um, starting last week, we started looking through this process called inductive Bible study. These three steps of observation, interpretation, and application. And last week, we looked at observation. So we're going to continue on that process this morning. I hope that's been encouraging to you. I hope there's been practical steps uh, for you to already start implementing in your own devotions, in your own time in God's Word Uh, throughout the week. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll dive into our lesson this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your written word. We thank you that you are a God who is real, who exists, who has spoken and revealed himself, so that you may be known, so that you may be submitted to, so that you may be loved and adored and enjoyed for all eternity. And I ask, Lord, that our hearts this morning would be eager and ready to know who you are as you've revealed yourself, that we would have a, um, a soberness, a seriousness, and a satisfaction that can't be satisfied apart from you. I pray that you would reveal to us these principles, these understandings, these, these tools, really, that ultimately depend totally on your spirit. Help us to not think that this is merely academic, but that you would help these to be simply tools that your spirit uses through your grace and your word to transform us to look more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. Pray that this would minister to your people this morning, and that it would be honoring to you. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we started talking about last week, we got into this topic of a type of Bible study called inductive Bible study. And this process is overall broken down into three steps. If you recall, the three steps of inductive Bible study are observation, where we're really looking to ask what. What does the text actually plainly say? Second step is interpretation. Interpretation is asking, so what? Now that I know what the text says, I need to understand its purpose. So what? What does it actually mean? And the last step of this process is application. So instead of asking what and then so what, we would move on to ask, now what? Now what do I do with the facts as presented and the understanding of the meaning of the author? Now how should I live? What does it mean for me today? And this is an important process that helps us to really grow in understanding God's word. And last week we looked at this um, first step of observation. We looked closer into this step and we looked at We need to observe words specifically. We need to look at literary types. What genre of literature was it written? We even asked specific uh, categories of questions, the five W's of who, what, when, where, why. We wanted to look at those as a framework with which we actually ask questions as we read through God's word to actually become familiar with just the presented facts of a text. And we would look at questions that are contextual questions or theological questions or even questions of intention or implication. 
And we wanted to gather all this as we really interrogated and um, uh, seeking to understand more and more of the text. It was an interrogation of sorts. And uh, now, today, we're going to move on to the second step. And if you recall, this is a progressive study. So you want to make sure to do these steps in order. And the next step, after gathering all these questions and looking at all these details of the text in its context, we want to look today more into the topic of interpretation specifically. So now that we know what a text says, we would move forward to ask, so what? So what does this text mean? And that's the topic of interpretation. Maybe you've um, heard before that there's lots of different type of interpretations of a text. And maybe that's something that's even in your mind right now, just thinking through, you hear over and over, well, there's different interpretations. People read that differently. And there's lots of times that you can even misinterpret a text. And I want to just claim, plainly say the danger of misinterpretation is, is that you're actually not believing the truth that God has presented. That's the danger of misinterpretation. So this isn't something that's kind of a light matter of, well, you can, you can have your interpretation and you can have yours, but we actually ought to have a serious attitude in understanding, interpreting Scripture rightly. And if you recall from last week, uh, we had this image come up of understanding where does meaning really lie? Does it lie with the reader or does it lie with the author? And we saw that the meaning of a text is intended by the author. And so our primary question, even in starting an observation, was what did the author mean? But if we're going to have any hope of really interpreting God's word accurately to understand the author's meaning, we're going to have to start with the fundamental truth that the meaning of Scripture is not our subjective truths read into the text, but it's God's objective truth read instead out of the text. So this morning I wanted to provide um, a definition for interpretation. Our definition for interpretation is uh, a process which attempts to account for what how and why the author said it that way. Very simply, we're trying to understand the what. So what the author said in context. We want to understand the historical, literary flow, and even the flow of the book of the writing. And we want to understand the how. How the author actually said what they said. What is the content? What are the words? What are the phrases? And, and then the why. Why the author said it that way. Its purpose, its aim, and its meaning. And all this is trying to really comprehend what the meaning the author intended to communicate. So I think through it in these kind of um, building blocks of principles. So we want to look at this, this block of context, what the author said. What were they actually communicating historically, um, culturally? What was the context of the statement? And then the other one would be the content. So we want to understand the actual words and phrases. He, he spoke in a specific way. This is inspired by God's word. The, the men were not um, interpreting God's word, Peter would write in Second um, Peter, but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit when they wrote. And so understanding the content of the word choice even matters. And looking at these together is really the, the breadcrumbs that lead us to this ultimate um, uh, effort in interpretation, which is understanding the meaning. So context and content build us to get to this point of meaning. But you might have heard it said, well, as we mentioned earlier, there's lots of interpretations. And maybe that conflates in your mind to say there's a lots of different meanings. There's lots of things, lots of truth I find in God's word. But we need to remember that there's not multiple meanings, right? There's not meanings running all over to say there's lots of different meanings. But rather, there is a meaning, a singular meaning, that's, that's intended by the original author. Remember, we talked about this last week, author's intent. 
authorial intent. This is a phrase that's really important when we come to God's word and when we start asking questions to say, what did the author mean when they wrote these words? And that will guide us and direct us into a deeper understanding of interpretation, a step in this process of inductive Bible study. So if there really is one meaning, and my interpretation then is, is an attempt to find that meaning, there may be multiple interpretations, but that doesn't mean they're all right. Because there's one meaning we're seeking to find, and that's the author's, the author's meaning. So if there really is one right meaning of the text, why would we find so many different interpretations? Why do so many people get it so wrong or different than one another? And I thought it would be helpful to really look through a case set of examples visually, to really think through God's word as a whole. So as a whole, God has revealed himself, and from front to back, we have God's revelation of who he is as written and as um, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So what we would find then as we study in the first step, we're going to discover in a specific text textual details or details that we find from the specific text. And this would be a sphere of information. These are details that the author's given, whether it's a location or um, who the author is, the audience is. There's specific details that are presented in a specific passage. And if I came up with interpretation, we'll just call it interpretation number one, it may be that some of it has truth. There is some truth in it that agrees with God's word as a whole, but if it goes outside the bounds of God's revelation and it actually is contradictory to scripture as a whole, it would be a false interpretation. It would be incorrect because one, it doesn't have any of the textual details at all, and it's not relevant to the specific text, but it's also disagreeing with Scripture as a whole. That's why the principle of Scripture should interpret Scripture helps us to understand that this, this word that God has written for us to reveal about himself is consistent. There's no disagreement. So if we find an interpretation of a text that disagrees with any part of Scripture, we ought to go back to the drawing board, right? We need to go back and say, this, this obviously isn't right because there's plain and clear teaching in Scripture that disagrees with it. So we'd go back and we'd come back with maybe a second interpretation. We want to reevaluate. And we would come and we would say, well, I think this is really what this text is meaning. And here we have an example of an interpretation that is totally outside of the textual details, right? It's outside of the details, but it's inside God's revelation. So there's good news that you're not wrong, but you're also not right. And that's the problem is if you're looking at a specific text, for example, let's think of Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 uh, around verses, the 20 verses, it says, Husband, love your, wives, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And if I opened up God's word and was studying and was looking at this text in its context, and I decided, you know, not decided, but I, I looked at it and I thought my, really, my interpretation of this text is Paul wanted believers at Ephesus to affirm the virgin birth of Christ. That's really what's kind of jumping out at me based on these details, this doctrine about the virgin birth of Christ. It agrees with all scripture, it's true, and I can find other parts of scripture that agree with it, but it really isn't germane or part of Paul's um, exhortation or his encouragement that is actually part of the text I'm studying because it's separate from the textual details. So understanding that our interpretation doesn't just merely need to agree with all scripture, it needs to agree with the context in which the author was writing. What are the details that he presented? That's why observation is foundational for having a good interpretation of scripture. I need to get my details from the text itself. So the true test of one's interpretation of scripture must start with a comparison to the facts given by the author within the text. 
So we ought to ask the question, how does my interpretation line up or overlap with what the author actually said? So I would go back to the drawing board, and I would come back maybe after looking at the text again with more detail and say, here's another summary statement. Here's an interpretation of what I think the meaning the author originally meant is. And I would overlay it with the text. I would lay it on top of the text and say, you know what? I'm getting some more specific details here about what the text means. So an example uh, would be in Colossians, right? Colossians 2, 14. Um, I'll read 13 and 14 for us. It says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uns- uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And how is this? In verse 14, Paul would write saying, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So I could look at this verse and I could say, get really zoomed in on this idea of the cross and this idea of forgiveness and canceling of debt. And that's true. I see those textual details. But if I looked at this word cross and I brought in um, cross references about, in other parts of scripture, about this theme of the cross, about the crucifixion of Christ and saw him as a suffering servant and saw it as a shameful act, I'm actually getting a totally different sense of what Paul's arguing for here. And we see that in the next verse. In verse 15, Paul would continue. He said, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. So if I was to look at this text and my interpretation comes out with with the suffering servant of Christ who, who bore my shame, that would actually be contrary to what Paul's actually arguing towards. He's trying to say, no, this is a victorious Christ whose death actually has accomplished victory and has put to shame all those in opposition to him. So both are true, both are within God's revelation, and they're they're aspects, you could say, of this gospel truth that is transforming power. But if I'm coming away with an interpretation that's not a part of what the author's argument is, I'm not getting this meaning in this text right. So I hope you're understanding that there's, there's a specific boundary line we must guard in interpretation, and that's the author's meaning. So we don't want to do um, this interpretation lacks precision, we would say, because it overlaps with the immediate text, but it imports biblical ideas that are foreign to the author's actual current thinking when he was writing Colossians chapter 2. So we go back to the drawing board again, right? The anvil of interpretation. Trust me, it's a labor, but it's worth it because we're trying to understand who God is as he's revealed himself in each passage of scripture. So we'd come back and we'd come back with a second interpretation, and we would say, or sorry, a fourth interpretation now. I hope you know that this happens a lot. I can tell you in sermon prep or personal devotions, you go to compare it to the text, and you're like, throw it all away, right? That's, that's totally not what this text is saying, and you're going through this labor of love. It's worth it, and it's, it's so fruitful in your own personal walk with Christ. I hope you see that, but you'd come back again, and you're, you have this interpretation. You're like, I'm not importing ideas from other um, parts of the Bible, but in the same time, this, this interpretation is consistent throughout all of God's revelation, and it's really, it's really capturing this idea within this text. And if you flip open with me to Romans, Romans chapter 3, I want you to look in your, in your Bible at Romans chapter 3. While you're turning there, I'll just kind of give an example of this, this style of interpretation, this, this attempt at interpretation of a text. It's consistent with part of the details of the text, right? We're all within the details of the text, but we're leaving out significant portions. There's a lot of yellow left in this textual detail circle. And so we're missing maybe significant portions of facts within the immediate text. 
And what this is like is really, it's a, if I was to give it an illustration, it's sort of like enjoying um, a whole meal, but you're missing the main entree, right? It's, you, you have this beautiful meal presented, and there's maybe this side salad that has these candied pecans and this raspberry vinaigrette, and you're just like geeking out about these pecans and this vinaigrette, and you're just overwhelmed by how amazing this is. But you're missing out on the 16-ounce ribeye steak that's like super juicy and overflowing right in front of you. That's a problem, okay? The main entree is the steak. And if I get geeked out about the side salad, I'm gonna miss the main point, right? And that's, that's sort of what we're getting at with interpretation. I really need to get the main entree down. I need to understand the order of how this, this meal has been presented and what's, what's the highlight. So I wanted to look through an example together in Romans chapter three. Romans chapter three, uh, Paul is the author of this letter and he's writing to the church in Rome. And for the first two and a half chapters, really, He's been seeking to promote this argument, um, starting with this foundational piece of the depravity of man, that our, we are sinful apart from God, and that we are, there is none righteous, no, not one. He said just a couple verses earlier in chapter 3, he said, the Greeks are not righteous before God. According to the law, they are condemned. And according to the Jewish law, even, Jewish law is condemning man because they have no righteousness of their own before God. So in chapter 3, he continues, and in verse 21, he says the word but. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And as you read through this section, you really find that kind of uh, Paul's continuing his argument and makes a transition. But if I'm not catching that transition statement, I may zoom in on a verse that we all know very well. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we would say, amen, absolutely, that's true, I believe it. And it's within my text. If I'm looking at just verse 21 to 26, it's even almost in the center here, and Paul's adding in this statement, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But if my interpretation of this section as a whole highlights and makes the main entree this idea of the depravity of man, I'm going to miss what Paul is repeatedly saying in this text. In verse 21, he said, the righteousness of God has been manifested. In verse 22, the righteousness of God that is through faith in Christ. In verse 25, he says, this was to show God's righteousness. In verse 26, it was to show his righteousness. So the real, the real crime of an interpretation that centers on the depravity of man in verse 23 is that you're missing that he's pointing back to the entire argument he made the two and a half chapters. It's an arrow pointing back that's a black backdrop, but the diamond that's supposed to be revealed is God's righteousness that is only received by faith. That's it. That's the big entree. And if my interpretation, I walk away from this text centered on this idea, it is true according to God's scripture. It is true according to the textual details but I'm actually missing out on what Paul's argument has now switched to, to try to capture my attention, that it's only by faith in Jesus Christ. It's by grace, through faith in Christ alone, that we are saved, and that's where he presents this argument. And so if I was to interpret this section of Scripture, and I'm really focusing on the depravity of man, I'm missing the full diamond that's meant to be on display. So I'd go back again, and I'd say, okay, I'm missing some big pieces, and a big way of how this can be done. So in your personal study, if you were to take the depravity of man as, your, as maybe your theme or summary statement, you would go through every verse. You'd go, how does this fit in with verse 21, and 22, and 23, and 24, and 25, and 26? And you really use that as, as, are these textual details pointing to this as the main idea? 
If not, I need to go back to the drawing board because I'm not getting the main idea and thrust of what, what Paul is trying to communicate to this original audience. So we go back to the drawing board and we come back with now our fifth interpretation. Now this one takes up a lot more of the details. As I'm comparing it through, I see the idea that this is actually Paul's not just, and if we use the same example of Romans 3, right? Paul is not just saying that the depravity of man, but that's the backdrop of, of really displaying God's righteousness for sinful people through faith. Now, I would take that summary statement, I'd go through every verse, and I see this is really hitting every verse, every phrase, every sentence that Paul's arguing here is captured in this idea, this summary statement, that the righteousness of God is only received by faith in Christ alone. So, that was really a walkthrough of, of why we get different interpretations, how it can be totally wrong and contrary to Scripture, how it can be really true according to Scripture, but it's not in this text, and how as we labor through this work of, of looking at the details, it really helps us to narrow in on what is the main idea of the uh, author's original intent to the original audience. We would say interpretation number five is clearly the best interpretation of the scripture because it captures the most details present in the text and is harmonious and consistent with all of God's revealed word. So we really have two layers of testing. We have a layer of the text details narrowly, but we also have this, this harmonious agreement with all of God's word because God's word completely is true. So, sticking close to the text, this gives us the greatest likelihood of actually finding what the author originally had in mind. This is the labor of interpretation, and to recognize through the author's context and content what the author meant to communicate to the original audience is a glorious and re rewarding and transforming act that the Spirit does as you labor in God's word through his Spirit, by his grace, to understand what was actually meant. So to really pin down how we determine the accuracy of our interpretation, it really depends on two primary variables. One would be how carefully we see the entire text within its context. So we would say, if, if I had this narrow circle of the text details, and if I'm missing some key details, I'd, I tried to run through observation because I really was eager to understand the author's meaning, I maybe sometimes need to actually go back to step one and I say, there's actually more details here that I missed. I think there's some, some details that I, I missed some repeated words, I missed some key themes, there's something in here that I was missing, and that would mean I need to go back to the drawing board of interpretation, right? And that's the second variable. Not only do I need to make sure I gather the details of the text, but how well does my interpretation then overlay with and explain the, the uh, intricate details that are presented by the author? So I would go back and I would say, I need to make sure my interpretation is, is covering this entire text to capture what is this, this overlaying big idea that the author is meaning to communicate. So I hope that's helpful in just thinking through why are there multiple interpretations? How do, I, how do I actually evaluate somebody's interpretation? I need to take it to God's word. If someone presents an interpretation of a text that your gut check is just like, ooh, that, that, that doesn't sound right. That makes no sense to me. You just go back to the text. A lot of times um, in ministry, you'll get asked a question or even if you profess your faith at work, they'll ask you a question and they'll even say, doesn't the Bible say ba da 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 and you're like, I know it's a no, but I don't really know how they got that from that text. What I'd encourage you to do is open your Bible with them and just plainly set your Bible open and say, can we just read like the chapter before and the after or like 10 verses around this and just see if, if your interpretation makes sense with just the plain reading of the text? 
And what that does is it says, I'm not really the one trying to tell you you're wrong. I'm just, I'm just lifting up God's word and wanting us to look at it together honestly. And that helps us as we're, as we're laboring to understand God's word to say, let's look at it in its context and ask God to help us understand what he actually meant. So in this process of interpretation, you are going to need tools. Um, and the primary tool is God's word. As we saw in the previous um, slide, there's this God's revelation for us to know and believe is true and to use as a helpful boundary line so that we don't fall into error. We should use the clear to understand the unclear. And there's tools that help us because a big thing about interpretation is that, that textual details circle. And what's so helpful is knowing that there's other believers who have even gone before us who have labored in God's word to look at the details of the text And what we ought to do is not say, well, I don't want to just grab somebody's interpretation. That's true. I don't want to just grab it and and really have like a candy bar when I need to have a healthy meal of actually sitting down and that takes more work. But rather what I can do is I say, I actually want to borrow their observations and see if it really makes sense with this. They've, They've spent a lot of time observing. I've done my observations first. Now I need to go and actually find some answers to some questions. I've asked a lot of who questions, a lot of what questions. Who's the author? Who are they writing to? And as you read the entire letter or book of God's word, you're going to get a lot of those answers straight from scripture. But what you'll find is when you, when you compare or, or bring in observations of others, you'll actually be able to, to almost, it's like interacting with a commentary or interacting with others' observations and say, ah, I don't think that's a good observation. I don't think that's actually what this text means, and here's why. And you'll be able to actually label through it rather than if you skip observations and try to steal somebody else's, you're just going to be taking and drinking the Kool-Aid, so to speak. Whatever they say is going to go. So I want to make sure that God's word is the authority. So the first uh, most helpful tool, I would say, that's, that's really going to help you in Bible study is Bible translations. So a lot of us have been used to a specific translation of Scripture, and it's very helpful for Scripture memory, for familiarity with your Bible itself as you're using that tool in ministry to others and for yourself. But let me encourage you, if you're trying to make detailed observations about a text, I would encourage you to have multiple translations that you read through, both in the letter or book of the Bible, but also in the immediate text itself. So if you're looking, let's say you commonly use the ESV, I would read the text and even maybe the whole book, depending on its length, in the NIV or the NASB. And what this does is it helps you to evaluate why did translators labor through and pick different English words for this Hebrew or Greek word. And what that does is it helps you focus in, okay, I actually need to understand this word. This, this detail is very specific, and this impacts the whole flow of Paul's argument. So I want to make sure I understand this one properly. And then that's going to be a focus point as you look into other tools to gather information, to gather answers to your questions as you labor for a summary statement and interpretation. So Bible translations is super helpful in sharpening us to understand the author's intent. I'd also encourage you to think through these sort of different spheres um, as you evaluate not just the translations, but but also looking at the author. So if if I'm seeking to understand what John means by the word believe, it would be very beneficial for me to look within the book itself. So if I'm studying um, the uh, gospel of John, so to speak, and he uses the word believe over and over and over again, I would understand what what John meant by the word believe, then I can look at the immediate book, and I can look through every time he uses that word because I'm I'm even with the same author. He's he's thinking the same way consistently, and and I, I can look at the different contexts in which he uses this word to help me come to an understanding. I could also look at the author himself and say he's written other books of the Bible maybe. 
John has. He wrote some epistles. He wrote um, Revelation at the end of God's, um, at, at the end of Scripture. And so I could look at him as an author and say, does he use the word believe in these other writings? So I could look even within the sphere of not just the book, but the author himself, and then even expand out further and say, okay, maybe there's not a repetition of this word or um, these phrases, but I could look then outside at a, at a larger sphere to say, is there anything in the same testament, in the same era, this time frame of how this culturally language thing worked? You know, what was he, how was he using this word? So I would look within the same testament. And then, of course, we could go to um, the Bible itself as a whole. We would expand out. So thinking through these spheres is helpful as you're evaluating um, an interpretation step, how I can use other parts of Scripture. I want to go through this sphere to give me the most closest, narrow understanding of what the author himself was seeking to communicate to the original audience. So some other um, tools that are going to be really helpful are study Bibles. I've mentioned these before, but having a study Bible like the ESV study Bible or John MacArthur study Bible, those are tools that really help you get answers to um, the literature style or the historical context or the cultural context and even understanding big themes of a book. So if I'm interpreting a text that's within a whole um, gospel, so to speak, in the Gospel of John, I want to make sure that's consistent with what the themes are that John was writing about. And John is seeking to write about, he says plainly, he says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So if my interpretation disagrees with that, I'm going to have a big problem. And knowing those themes as a big picture is helpful. And you can learn that from Bible studies. They have an introductory that gives you a lot of that information. But again, those are observations. So I'm not taking those as scripture as much as I'm saying, I'm going to test that against what Bible says itself. So if it says the author is John, I want to seek to understand from the flow of the text and the author himself, does he declare who he is as an author, or does, are there indications within the text of who the author is? It helps me to verify my observations and answer the questions that I didn't have when I was reading through it on my own. Other helpful tools um, are going to be concordances or dictionaries for the Bible. So a concordance is really to, to help you get, uh, and dictionaries are help you to understand specific words. So some of these other tools have helped with um, historical and cultural, but understanding words are important as well. So a concordance really tells the reader where certain words are in the Bible. So you've heard of a Strong's concordance or an ESV concordance. A really helpful cross-reference tool that, that operates like a concordance is the Treasury of Scripture of Knowledge. Um, it has like 500,000 cross-references that say these are, are cross-references to say this word in the Greek is also used over here and over here and over here and over here. And it helps you to just compile that data so you can go through quickly and say, how is this word being used in other contexts? Is it consistent? Is there irregularity? And it helps you really dig deeper. And when we're seeking to understand interpretation, the words are going to matter. So understanding that these tools are to help you cross-reference, to bring in Scripture as a whole. Is there agreement and consistency within my interpretation, seeking to find the author's meaning, and the other texts of Scripture that speak to this topic so we're also going to be able to use Bible dictionaries. Um, a dictionary is different than a concordance in the sense that it tells the reader a meaning of words based on their use in Scripture. And so again, this isn't authoritative, but it helps you to have a range of meaning to say there's, there's different meaning um, between how a word is used in its context. The context defines the meaning most preeminently. So I need to understand what are ways that words have been used differently. And we use this in Scripture too. Um, it shouldn't seem like shady to us to think that words can have different definitions, but we would commonly use the example of, you know, you could say, I love tacos and I love my wife, right? And those don't mean the same thing, even though the four letters are identical. They're very different in their meaning. 
And so understanding that helps us to, to really come to God's word and say, I need to understand this meaning in its context. So another tool that would be helpful as you labor through interpretation is having a geographical understanding, especially in the Gospels. Lots of times there's, there's points um, that are labeled geographically, um, and we talked about some of those last week. So having a Bible atlas really helps us who live in Western society to be able to go back to the original context to say, where were they traveling to? What, is this a port city? Is it in the middle? Does it have any water access? What are some, some geographical factors to this text of Scripture that are pertinent to the details? A lot of times when you're looking at the illustrations of Jesus, it's amazing to me how he, he points out things in nature that would have been really apparent to those that are talking to him outdoors. A lot of times he's talking about stuff that people can even see with their own eyes. He's talking about the birds being provided for or the flowers and lilies of the field. Like, they would have a visual picture of exactly what he's talking about, a depiction that would help them even capture the illustration that he's pointing out. And that really helps us as we seek to understand and labor through uh, the text. So there's also would be a fifth tool that you could use, would be Bible commentaries. Bible commentaries can be helpful as you evaluate the literature or the grammatical aspects of, of a text or even the historical context. So these, these Bible commentators, although they are not um, authoritative, they are so helpful to interact with because you'll get some details and you'll say, I want you, commentator, to prove to me from the text, because I'm looking for the author's intent, how you got that point. And it helps you interact in a really condensed way to read through a commentary briefly that's really just on your text. You don't have to read the entire commentary, but if you're studying Romans uh, 3, 21 through 26, you can pick up a commentary that says, hey, I want to look at just these five verses. What does the commentator say about this? What are they pointing? What's the kind of the big idea that they're seeing the author was intending to mean? And is that consistent with the observations, with the facts the author presents? And it helps you interact. But I would encourage you to do that, but not to do it too soon. If you jump too soon, you're not laboring to see the observations yourself. And, and again, you'll, you'll digest what they're saying rather than uh, more be like a cow where you kind of chew on it and you bring it back up and you say, oh, I don't like that. And you kind of just process it differently. That was probably really gross, but that's the illustration that popped up. Okay, last tool is going to be number six, I would say, um, and J.D. mentioned this to me this last week, was using a systematic theology. Um, this can be really helpful if you flip open to the back and you just look for the text that you're looking at. There's a, there's a scripture indexed, and you can look through and say, what are some theological themes that are really, um, really a part of this, this section of the Bible that I'm seeking to study? Have I found those already? Or what, what sort of um, um, themes, what sort of theological truths are present in this text that help me understand what the author was pointing to? Because Scripture as a whole is theological. It's, it's a revelation of who God is. And so if, I, if I'm looking through a text and I'm just coming up with a man-centered or a moralistic type idea of like people ought to be this, it needs to be attached to this theological idea of who God is because that's where the transforming power lies. So understanding that I need to even see and use tools to help me pick up the theological context in which an author is writing is going to be very important for us. So I hope you will, you will think about evaluating, even acquiring some of these tools if you don't have them, and use them in your study in the second step. Don't break these out too soon. You don't want to, they're not really necessary in observation. You need to labor in the text and become really familiar with it um, yourself. You ought to have it um, even, even hopefully, depending on the length of it, memorized. You want to be so familiar with it, you know Philippians is on page 1,179 in my Bible. That's not even a relevant detail, but 
But I looked at it so much, I labored in it so long, it's like I know this specific detail about it because I've, you're spending so much time in it that it's, that it's really inside of you and you can then evaluate this information that's being presented in conjunction with understanding the author's intent. So, what are the steps? How do we summarize this process? Not only um, what is the aim, how do we understand different sort of interpretations that are aiming at understanding the meaning, and how do we actually um, use some tools to get answers to these questions, but the real aim as a whole is to come to this summary statement. So what are the steps leading up to that? I would say the first step in the linear process of interpretation is to, one, examine the context of the book. So in this step, your goal is to seek to know who the author is, who the audience is, the date it was written, the purpose of the book, and in there you're going to have um, literary information, you're going to have historical information and cultural information that really helps you to get yourself back into the ancient times as a modern person, and not to bring your modern presumptions with you, but to understand what the text meant originally. So we really want to examine the content of the book. And at this step, what's different than observation is you're seeking to find the answers at this point. You're looking to answer the questions that you've gathered, that you labored through, that you didn't know at first. And the context is really important. Um, I thought of, there was a time, well, let me do it this way. This is going to sound weird at first, but that's the point. So the illustration here is to help you understand context is so, so important. If I said, why did the light not talk to the lightsaber to get to the other side? Good, none of you laughed, because that's horrible and it makes no sense, right? But if I told you I was at Culver's with my kids and my family, and I was talking to my kids, and Judah grabbed a hold of one of those blue spoons at Culver's, and me, being a dad, grab my blue spoon, and we start ting, 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 and he's just laughing his head off, and I start calling it a lightsaber and go, vroom, 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 making all these side crosses. And then my four-year-old daughter, Primrose, says, hey, Dad, why didn't the light talk to the lightsaber? Because he didn't want to get to the other side. Right? It made no sense apart from that context. It was actually gibberish, probably even in its context, but, but the humor of it is wrapped up in the author, right? It's a four-year-old girl that's talking to her dad that really wants to make him laugh and is enjoying this funny family moment, right? Out of its context, it, it was literally meant nothing to me, but in its context is a precious memory that I'll carry with me. And I understand what my daughter was wanting to do was engage with me as, as my child who loves me and wants to make me laugh and, and enjoy relationships. So context is so important. Don't let these phrases just glaze over your eyes without understanding the context of when it was written, when it was spoken, why it was said. Laboring in context is super important because out of context, it really doesn't make sense. It won't make sense to you. There will be no transformation because you're not understanding the author's meaning, the intent. So knowing who, it, who wrote the, uh, the author, the audience, why they were writing, the literary types, the historical and cultural context of the time period it was written are very important as we labor towards interpretation. The second step would be identifying biblical cross-references. So in interpretation, I want to bring in now uh, biblical cross-references. And if you just flipped open to probably the Bible you have even has um, some pages around the table of context that will actually help you understand this sliver in the middle of Scripture, or maybe your Bible has cross-references in it. And sometimes we just kind of glaze over it because it looks cryptic and coded, but it's actually very 
um, helpful for us as we're seeking to understand cross-references. So there's different types of cross-references that are labeled within the Bible tools that you have. There's references to specific words and phrases that are cited in there. There's comparative references that have really the same theme but not the same word. There's even less direct references that provide additional information or insight about the theme. It's a complementary cross-reference. And there's even quoted references in Scripture that say, this is actually a quote from a different part of Scripture, and you ought to know the context in which they're quoting from either an Old Testament author or from um, the, the Torah, um, the first five books of the Bible. So understanding how to use the cross-reference tool within your own Bible really helps you to understand how to look at Scripture in whole to, to inform, not to import, but to inform your understanding of the main idea. So the goal of finding these cross-references is to understand relevant information to the study of your passage. So you're not going to study a text and understand all of systematic theology, but you are going to study a text and understand that specific Um, point that the author was trying to make. So the third step after cross-referencing would be to examine commentaries. So you've gathered the information, you've looked at scripture itself, now is the point where you can labor through a commentary. You can read a selection of commentaries or even just one to really, that really discusses the passage you're considering. And you can, you can argue with it. You can agree, you can disagree, but you ought to labor against the text details that you found information on that's provided within the book or the immediate context of the passage that you're, that you're going through. And this, this will prepare you to come to the fourth and really the, the main aim of interpretation, which is to summarize your passage. The goal here is to really write out what the author intended for the audience. To know concisely um, this information will will actually help you convey the understanding of the passage much better. So summarizing the passage, I would encourage you to write out and rewrite and rewrite and scratch through what are ways that you can summarize the, the actual author's intent of what they're seeking to communicate. So you're wanting to then go back, like we talked about earlier, and you would test that summary against every verse in the section that you're studying through. And you want to see, does this fit within the entire passage? Are there ideas that really aren't relevant to my summary statement, and it doesn't really fit with this section of the passage? And really, your goal in this laboring process is to find the main message the author was communicating originally. And so remembering some of these statements, to give you an example that would be helpful, even at this stage, is to include the name of the author in the audience. So a lot of times what I'll do is I, so studying through Philippians, I would write, Paul wanted the Philippians to know. Paul wanted the Philippians to believe. Paul wanted the Philippians to live. There's going to be some sort of verb, but I'm having Paul and Philippians in my summary statement even at this point to really just capture this authorial intent of what's communicated. And then in the third step um, of, of inductive Bible study is when we'll try to say, what is this universal truth that's true then, this timeless truth that was true of what Paul was communicating to the Philippians that will be true for us today. That's why getting down to your summary passage is so important. And then the fifth, of course, is testing it, which I talked about. I just didn't click the button. But testing your summary statement against the passage is really important to make sure you're getting the largest square within the details presented in the author to really nail down what is the author's intent. What are they meaning to convey and communicate? Why did they mention these details? And doing this um, will get you through the step of interpretation and help us to jump into the final step, the third step of application, where we really want to say, this is what it meant in its original context. This is what's true then and today. How do I actually live in a way that abides and submits 
and, and walks in God's ways as he's communicated about himself and about for me to live under his righteous rule. So hopefully this has been helpful in understanding a, a step-by-step process of how you can go through inductive Bible study on your own and working through observations and spending time laboring through that and then coming to interpretation and narrowing in what is this text actually communicating and coming to a point where you can actually summarize and articulate that in your own words so that you understand what it is the author intended for the original audience. So next week, be sure to come back and we're going to continue in our study of the Bible or our class on how to study the Bible rather. In lesson five, we're going to be talking through the third step of application. How do we take all of this together and actually understand what it means for me today? Not just what and so what, but now what? How now shall we live? So hopefully this has been encouraging for you, and please do come back next week as we seek to to understand how to apply God's word to our life personally. Uh, With that, you're dismissed, and we'll be back here at 1030 for worship together.